0: If you were here two weeks ago, I started in on Romans 8, and I'm just going to take a few verses, two, three, four, five verses a week and make my way through Romans 8 every other week as Reed continues to go through First Thessalonians. So this morning, uh, your bulletin says Romans 8, 1 and 2, but then I have listed 1 through 4, and that's what we're going to go through, 1 through 4, okay? So I'm going to read Romans 8, 1 to 4, we're going to pray, and we're just going to get right into it. Romans 8, 1-4, this is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we uh, are here before you with our Bibles open, I pray that our minds and hearts would be open as well. I pray that you would uh, do a sanctifying work in our hearts. Uh, that we would have our eyes opened to see the mighty work of your Holy Spirit who does a magnificent, glorious, powerful work in our hearts. And I pray that we would not only see that in in the text here this morning, but I pray that we would experience that in our own hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at just the first two verses of this remarkable chapter, Romans 8. And the main point was this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. This is the reality. There is not now, nor can there ever be condemnation for those who are in Christ. So condemnation is guilt and the associated punishment that comes from real guilt. And if you are in Christ, that has passed over you because it landed on Jesus, okay? So the place we landed last or two weeks ago was we focused on the relief and the joy of having as a banner over our lives, no condemnation, okay? What a relief, what a joy to know that. And if you are in Christ, that is certainly the banner over your life. As Christians, we need to be assured of this. Not all Christians are, sadly, but this is the privilege we have, to know that there is no guilt, there is no condemnation, and when you stand before the bar of God's justice, you are not guilty, but innocent, righteous, justified. Now, like I said, sadly, many Christians are not sure of this, and live with a nagging sense of guilt. They're, they live with a nagging anxiety and fear. And it's easy to see why. Because they are unsure. When I say they, I don't want to exclude myself, because this is a battle sometimes. But we can live unsure of the favor of God. We can live unsure of the rich acceptance that he gives to us in and through Jesus Christ. So as Christians, as those who are in Christ by faith in him, we've been placed in Jesus. For those who are in Christ, we can know this with complete assurance. We look not to ourselves, but to what Christ has done on our behalf. And so that's what we talked about last time. Uh, no condemnation. No condemnation. Can we say it together? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, but almost in passing, I mentioned something that is of immense importance. And it's this. And this is what we're going to focus on today. It is the Spirit who sets us free. It is the Spirit who sets us free. This is the all-important issue we need to cover today and look at deeply. It's the Holy Spirit who frees us. So, verses 3 and 4 unpack this more, but we see this statement made plainly in verse 2. Okay? So, verse 1 is, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then verse 2 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay? So, Who is the instrumental person involved in setting us free? I mean, let me back up. We see the Father, Son, and Spirit at work in all four of these verses, but who's the instrumental person at work involved in setting us free? It's the Holy Spirit. This is a great truth. The work of the Spirit in setting us free is a glorious truth, and this is more than just a merely positional truth. Like, well, because we are in Christ, because of what he's done on our behalf, we are free. There's truth there. That is true. Okay, that is true, no doubt. Um, but this is speaking of an inner work of freedom the Holy Spirit does in the heart. This is something that is experienced in our life. There is a, an experience of liberation and emancipation and freedom com- that comes from this work of the Spirit. In verse 2, we see the the use of the word law. We actually see it used twice. The law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. Now, when Paul uses the word law here in verse 2, I think he's using law in a different way than he normally does in the book of Romans. When you read through the book of Romans, Paul talks about the law quite a bit. And most of the time he's referring to the Mosaic Law with all of its commands and how we are condemned by the Mosaic Law, by the Law of Commands because we can't keep it. But here I think Paul is using the word law to refer to a principle or a power. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase, I think it's probably a book too, I don't know, maybe it's a whole movement, who knows. Uh, the law of attraction. Ever heard of that before? Okay? The law of attraction, it's not talking about a list of rules per se, but it's talking about a principle of attraction or a power of attraction. And I think that's the way Paul's using the word law here in verse two. The law of the spirit of life refers to the power of the spirit. The power of the spirit who gives life and what have we been set free from by the Holy Spirit well it's the law or the principle of sin or the power of sin and death and so what I want you to see is that this is a work of the Holy Spirit doing something in us This is a work of the Holy Spirit where we experience the the liberating power of the Spirit inwardly, and then, of course, it affects our lives as we live it out. I think there's an important distinction, though, to be made. The Christian life is one that begins inward and works out. Do you understand that? It begins in the heart and then works out. It never can begin on the outside and then work in. External commands can never produce an inward change. Now, don't, we need external commands. We need laws in society, and our kids need commands to not run in the street when they're three or not touch the, you know, the, wood, the stove with the fire on it or whatever. But external commands don't change the heart. It's an issue of root and fruit. Fruit always flows from the root and not the other way around. Now, I believe that what we're going to cover today is truly the greatest and grandest thing about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He gives us life and he produces this glorious inward thing that we're going to discuss In the Old Testament, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. We see it often. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals for service. I think of two guys named Bezalel and Aholiab were filled with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit gave them wisdom to be craftsmen in the the construction of the, the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit was given to men like Gideon and Samson and uh, Saul, I am gonna say Solomon, but Saul were given the Holy Spirit. And, and so we see the Holy Spirit at work in people and among people. But one thing we never see in the Old Testament, I don't think, is the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence in a person, dwelling within them. I think that's something that's new in the New Testament. It's part of the New Covenant. God says, I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my statutes. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He said, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So I think what Jesus is saying is he's not in you yet, but he dwells with you and you will experience him dwelling in you and being in you. So we need to see the inward operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. I think verses 3 and 4 really help to highlight this. So here's what I want to talk about today. How does this work? What does he, namely the Holy Spirit, what does he do? That's what we're going to look at today. But we need to take it step by step. Okay? We don't get, I don't want to get ahead of us. We need to take it step by step and see how this truth, the powerful inward work of the Spirit, is built upon another foundation. And so to do that, let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 at the beginning says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now there I think he's talking about the law of commands. Do this, don't do that. Okay? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So let me ask you, what could the law not do? Well, there's lots of things the law can do The law can give commands. The law can show us our sin. The law can condemn us. The law can also show us positively what pleases God. The law can show us the nature and character of God. The law can show us the path of obedience to God. All of that. But what can the law not do? The law cannot change our hearts. The law cannot do that deep, inward, renewing, work that we need it can't do that it can do all those external things it can't change the heart the law cannot provide here's maybe another way to put it the law cannot provide the power to do what it commands us to do that's important the law cannot provide us the power to do what it commands us to do so God did something because the law is weakened by the flesh God did something, and this is truly good news. This is gospel truth you can take to the bank. Now, I've quoted this many times, I think, from up here. You can nod with me if if you've heard me say this before, or like five times from up here. But there's this little poem by John Bunyan that I repeat to myself. I've taught my kids this, and anyone else who is willing to hear. I want, you to, I want you to learn this. This is really pertinent for this morning. The, it goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far, news the, far better news the gospel brings, it bids us to fly and gives us wings. So it shows us the weakness of the law, right? The law Gives us commands. Do this, don't do that. Run, walk, do this. But it doesn't give us the feet or hands to do it. But the gospel comes along and it says, fly. And it gives us wings. God gives us wings to do it. So the law cannot change the heart. So God stepped in to do something. So what did God do? Two steps. Okay, this is going to take the rest of our time this morning. Two steps. Two steps really one step and then the second one is just the result of the first one. Okay, one, one, one step and then I guess the outcome of that first step, okay? Let's look at verse three in its entirety. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So God did something. Because the law was incapable of producing a changed heart, God did something. He sent his own son, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now this is key, okay? Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. God the Father sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't actually come in sinful flesh, but he came in the likeness of of sinful flesh, which I think just points to the incarnation that he was truly a man, but he didn't have a sin nature like us, and he never sinned. And this is key, because if Jesus had a sinful nature, he most certainly would have sinned, because sin comes from a sinful nature, and he wouldn't be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But our hope is that he, in fact, was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So the Father sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh, and then it says this, and for sin. When you think about why Jesus came into the world as a man, one way to to answer the question why is he came for sin. Jesus came not to be kind of this original hippie going around telling everybody, peace, man, everyone's, we're good, you're good, I'm good. Not just to be this nice guy. He came into the world for sin. Sin. He came into the world to deal with sin. The Father sent Christ into the world for sin in order to condemn sin in the flesh. Now this brings us back to two weeks ago. We see the word condemn in verse 3. We see it back in verse 1, no condemnation. The basis of no condemnation for us is that our sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. Your sin, my sin, the sins of all who are in Christ, the sins of all who will ever trust in Jesus, they were laid on Christ and they were condemned in him on the cross. And so we're not guilty, but rather, positively, we're justified, we're righteous, we're innocent in God's sight. And the basis, again, is what Christ has done on our behalf. Now, at the risk of belaboring the point, I just want to press this again. Are you assured of this? Do you know this as something that is true for you because you are in Christ? Let me ask it another way Are you relying on Jesus Christ alone for your standing with God? Or are you relying entirely or even a little bit on your emotions? on your thoughts, on your understanding of truth, on your performance of religious activities and spiritual duties. The only way to consistent assurance before God is to rely on Jesus Christ entirely. That's why, you know, the Protestant reformers, when they had these, they called them the five solas, They, they sola means, it's a uh, Latin, thank you. I'm like, had a brain lapse there. It's a Latin word that means alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Are you relying on Jesus alone? That's the sure way to having assurance before God. So that's step one in this inward change. God sent Christ into the world and did something for us. Now I said that step two is really the outcome of step one. So God sent Christ into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and he condemned sin in the flesh. So now we get to the outcome of that. What's the outcome? And we move from what God has done for us to what God now does in us. What is the outcome of this? Well, verse 4 says this. Verse 4 begins with the words, in order that, which I think signals to us that what comes next is the result of what came before. Okay, so here's what verse 4 says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now remember, the main point this morning is that it is the power of the Holy Spirit who sets us free from the power of sin and death. And so the first step was God sent Christ into the world to deal with our sin, to deal with our condemnation by condemning our sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And now we see the result of that. What is the result? Here's what it is. You Here's what I want to argue that it is. And I want to try to show you from this text and other places. I want to argue that the result of God condemning our sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ is that the power of the Spirit sets us free from sin and sets us free to love. We're set free from sin and we're set free to love one another. We're set free from sin. We're set free to love God supremely, of course, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Here's the connection, I think, between verses 3 and 4. It says that the outcome of our condemnation being taken away is spirit-empowered love for each other. Set free from sin and set free to love. Let me put it another way. When condemnation is removed, the Spirit sets us free from the power of sin and death and sets us free for love of our neighbor and of love of one another. And I think this is the mighty inward work of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to talk about a miracle, You want to talk about a miracle. It is to take someone who is in the death grip of sin and death and to set that person free in their hearts to love other people. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. There's nothing greater than this, I don't think. And let me show you why I think this is what Paul is saying, that the Spirit sets us free from sin. We We see that but sets us free for or to love. Notice the statement, the righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled. So in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Now, you, what, what is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, um, someone might say, well, it's to do everything the law requires. Right? That's the righteous requirement of the law, is to do everything the law requires. And I would say, yes, exactly, but what is that? Well, I would submit to you that the entire law is fulfilled by love. Right? The entire law is fulfilled by love. Let me prove this to you, impress it upon your hearts that I think this is exactly what Paul is saying and wants to drive like a stake into our minds and hearts. Look at, or don't look, but I'll read it for you, okay? You don't have to turn there. Paul says this in Galatians 5:14. He says for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later in the book of Romans, we're in chapter 8 later, just a few chapters later in chapter 13, Paul says the same thing. We actually studied it this last Thursday night. Verses 8 and 9 says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other." For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, is all summed up in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, what is the fulfillment of the law? It's to love one another. When that is the essence of what the law is all about, it's to love God and to love each other. It's why the Pharisees missed it. They were experts in the law, and yet they had no clue what the law was really all about. You remember the story, the lawyer came to Jesus, and he had some good answers. He said, well, love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good answer. And then the lawyer said this, ah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives a story. We love the story, the Good Samaritan. Who's our neighbor? Well, most immediately, the people around us, but there's no one who isn't our neighbor. Well, maybe this is just Paul who says this. I guess I just gave it away. Jesus did too, right? Well, James, the Apostle James agrees with this. In James chapter 2, verse 8, James uses this great, this great phrase. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. The fulfillment of the royal law. And finally, for good measure, let's, let's just listen to, to exactly what Jesus himself said. Now no doubt James well I shouldn't say no doubt. James it's likely, it's at least possible that James heard Jesus utter these words. So he would have gotten it from the right right from the horse's mouth, right from the the mouth of Christ. And all the other apostles who would have affirmed this would have would have gotten this from the Lord himself. Matthew 22 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, what is the, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So what is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, I think it's clear in Paul's mind and James and Jesus that it is to love one another. That's the essence of fulfilling the law is to love your neighbor, to love one another. But there's something else I want you to see. Because I could could see how one might think, well, this is just talking about Jesus fulfilling the law for us. But I want you to notice these two little words, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not for us, but in us. It's true that in a sense Jesus obeyed the entirety of the law perfectly for us, And his perfect obedience is counted as ours and so we're righteous because we believe in Jesus Christ. We're no longer viewed before God in terms of our sin, but in terms of Christ's righteousness. That's glorious and a wonderful truth. That's justification. But I believe this is talking about something else. This says the law, which is summed up in in love, is fulfilled in us. This is an inside job. And it's fulfilled in us by the powerful inward work of the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of love. And so putting together verses 3 and 4, we see that the outcome or result of Jesus Christ bearing our penalty and our sins and our guilt and taking away our condemnation is that we now bear the fruit of love in the power of the Holy Spirit. I say we bear it and we ought to. We ought to bear the fruit of love and it will be the result of every true born-again believer. It will, be the, it will be the result increasingly that we bear the fruit of love in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit sets us free from the power of sin and death and sets us free to love one another and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Here's how I think this works. Because you might say, well, what's the the connection between sin, right? Being being in the grip of sin, enslaved to sin, and then being set free to love. What's that connection? Here's here's what I think happens in the life of someone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. One way to think about sin, the power of sin, the principle of sin that I found helpful comes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the old reformer, he said, he described original sin or this power and principle of sin. I think this is really helpful. He describes it as someone turned in on themselves. Kind of an incurved uh, posture. Just turned in on themselves. J.I. Packer says something almost just like that. He describes the sin as this power, this principle, as um, this this anti-God, egocentric energy. Someone turned in on themselves. It's self-absorption. It's self-interest. It's self-centeredness. It's, well, it's narcissism. And in one sense, it's not hard to see this. I don't just mean everywhere else. <laughs> if we have some self-reflection, we can probably look back in our lives. And not, th- not saying that we're comp- we never battle with selfishness. We do. But it's also not hard to see this if you raise kids. Is it? Um, every parent has seen this inclination in their children. Now, since my oldest daughter, Sabrina, is not here, and I got some really funny stories how this plays out, how this has played out in her life, and she I've shared these before. She would be okay with me sharing this, but. Our, do- our dear daughter, Sabrina, who is a wonderful lady who loves the Lord now, was, uh, we saw this up close and personal with her. When she was a young girl learning her ABCs, have I shared this before? She was learning her ABCs like every three-year-old or so, or I don't know how old she was. And you'd get to that letter, it's probably confusing for every child, W. And she learned, we thought we were saying W, Sabrina, and so she learned double me, right? Not only that, when I remember when she was a young girl, three perhaps. She was our only child, so two or three. And Sabrina, or Alyssa and I were driving and she was in the back seat one time. We were listening to this song and uh, I don't, I'm not sure the name of it. I think it's Where the Spirit of the Lord is, There's Freedom. I think it's an old Vineyard song maybe. And uh, we were driving and, and Sabrina's in the back seat and it would get to the part where where the Spirit of the Lord is and everyone shouts, There is freedom! And we heard Sabrina shout, There is Brina! right? There's just this tendency to kind of, everything is self-referential, It's all right. It's just about us. Now, we laugh and with a three or four year old, it's funny and it's cute, but we see what happens in the life of someone who has never had this curbed. It's disastrous. It ruins their lives and the lives of many other people. Can I say something? It is what Pride Month is all about. It's what it's all about. It's people curved in on themselves, indulging in what they want to do. But the deep work of the Holy Spirit is he comes into our hearts and wrenches us free from sin, from this incurved posture. He sets us free from that and frees us to love. Have you ever noticed, um, maybe just upon a moment of like you're just, you're just kind of in the moment and you realize, have you ever noticed how you are the most free to, um, most free from sin and most free to think about others when you are not thinking about yourself at all? I've heard some describe this as the gift of self-forgetfulness. May God give us that. Or we just, right? I mean, I think this is part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. When everything is not self-referential, what people think about me, how does this affect me, 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 me. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now listen, I want to experience and I want you to experience the power of the Spirit coming upon us and powerfully working among us and in the midst of us and spiritual gifts flourishing and abounding and being used for the edification of the body. I want all of that. But we must always remember that the way of love, Paul says, is the more excellent way or does he say most excellent? Most excellent way. You know these verses, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. The last verse of 1 Corinthians 13 says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love, love is the most excellent way. This is why it is the supreme work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, producing this kind of other-centered, other-people-centered love. But there's one more phrase I want um, to point out here that I think is helpful so we don't misunderstand how this works on the ground where we actually live, okay? Okay. The law is fulfilled in, uh, so the, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled, listen to this, in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit, no doubt, but it is a work of the Spirit not apart from us. Okay? It is not as though this is something that just happens automatically, like we're just kind of carried along like, whoa, where am I going? You know? It doesn't work that way. This is a walk. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Love is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. It's a walk. No doubt when someone is born again or there's an initial freedom that comes, no doubt. But then we learn to walk according to the Spirit, and gain more and more freedom from sin, more and more freedom and liberty to love. It's a walk. So we bear the fruit of love and the power of the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. And this is, goes right along with what Paul says in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Man, I love that. He likes what I'm saying. Man, Zeke is with me here this morning. That's great. It doesn't bother me. Um, So, what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? This would be a good place for us to land this morning. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? If it doesn't happen automatically what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? J.I. Packer has this great phrase he says, talks about keeping in step with the Spirit. I think that's really helpful. How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, the obvious place to start is here. You can only walk according to the Spirit if you have Him. If He's in you. If He dwells within you. If you are the place He dwells if you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at this more next time because verses 5 to 9 really go into this uh, in more detail. But for the Christian, let me just put it this way, for the Christian who is relying on Jesus Christ alone, you have the Spirit. You have Him. You might experience Him more at times. There might be this, this swimming knowledge and understanding, He's in me! He's helping me, and other times it might seem like you're walking alone, but if you are relying on Jesus Christ alone, you have the Spirit. We all drink from the same Spirit, we're told. And so to walk in the Spirit is to live moment by moment in the power of the Spirit. What does this look like? Now, I'm going to give you a couple of things that I think are helpful in how to do this, things that I found helpful But it needs to be said that you can't nail down precisely how you walk in the Spirit. It's not mechanical in that way. Well, if you do this, if you do these three things, I'm going to give you three things, but if you do these three things, ta-da, you're walking by the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. He's a person, and he's God. And how do you walk in the strength of somebody else? There's some mystery here, but I think there are some things that are helpful. So I want to give you just a few general exhortations. Here's the first. To walk by the Spirit or to walk according to the Spirit, we need to be intentional. There needs to be some intentionality. Okay? Um, Recognizing our need. That's such a good place to start. Recognizing our need for the Holy Spirit. Recognizing... The Spirit's presence with us, whether whether we feel it or not that he's there, just recognizing, turning turning our attention to the Holy Spirit who's with us and recognizing his willingness to help us. We need to intentionally do this because it's a walk. It's not a one-time thing. It's a walk. It's a daily walk. The Holy Spirit is a person that we walk with. He's a person who says, you can walk in my strength. I will give you all the help that you need to live in my ways. Yet, how often is the Holy Spirit almost completely ignored or worse, grieved and quenched with impunity? How often is he completely ignored or worse, grieved, and we never confess and repent? I say this to my own shame. I know my own need to cultivate a dynamic walk in the spirit. I'm growing in that, but I need to grow so much more. And so this dynamic walk comes from intentionally relying upon him as a person who's in you and with you to help you. Second, to walk by the spirit, we need to obey. It requires obedience. He's God. Right? God is not just, he is our friend, but he's not just a friend. He's Lord. He's God. He gives commands, and we're to obey him. Love is manifested as we do what the Spirit says, what he commands us to do, relying on his strength. And I just want to make this point. Love is more than a sentimental feeling. You know, we can all say, I just love everyone because you just have these sentimental feelings. But then when you really get down to the, where the rubber meets the road, there's very little fruit of actual love on the ground. Love is more than a sentimental feeling. And so the Spirit directs us to act in love. I think sometimes the way he directs and leads us is directly kind of this inner prompting and so forth. And I, we, he does that. But I think it's really important to just affirm and also say and maybe even emphasize that what's most obvious is that we should obey the commands that we know from Scripture. Scripture. That's how we walk in the spirit. Did you notice um, in Romans 13, when I read those verses, Paul says the love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice how he, he started going through some of the 10 commandments. He said, you shall not, shall not commit adultery, you shall, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And he says, then all of these, and then all the other commands, it's all summed up in, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he start going through those commandments? Well, I think it's because the commands Those are the practical ways that we do love. We don't murder our neighbor. You might say, well, I've done that. I've never murdered somebody. Okay, good. But have you hated a brother in your heart? Have you muttered insults about a brother in your heart? Jesus said you've murdered him. You shall not commit adultery. I've never done that. All right, I'm I'm safe. Okay. It's more than that. And so obedience, obedience to what the Spirit directs us, how he directs us, what he commands us to do, we can be assured that as we seek to obey the Spirit and rely upon his help, we are most certainly walking in his strength. And finally, to walk by the Spirit is a walk, and this is just generally, I don't know, this might sound a little like, I don't know, um, out there, ambiguous, but to walk by the Spirit is a walk of faith. It's not quite like walking with your spouse or your child holding hands, walking down the sidewalk. It's a walk of faith. Walking in the Spirit is walking by faith and not by sight. We walk in the strength of another person who happens to be God and, let's just face it, he's someone that we can't see. But Jesus said, in John sixteen seven, it is to our advantage that he go away so that we could have the helper come and be with us and in us. Now, if it's to our advantage that the Holy Spirit be in us, then that Jesus be with us, walking with us, that is profound. This is something, brothers and sisters, we need to grow in. And by God's grace, we can and we will as we seek to. So, the Spirit sets us free from sin and death to fulfill the law of God, which is love. This is the mighty work of the Spirit in us. We need this work of. It. We need to know this and experience this and, and walk in this more fully for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning.